Hello there. My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. When I first started making audio recordings back in 2009, there was no real purpose or structure to what I was doing. For me, it was just one more way of getting information across to people via the Fishing Films and Facts website. And who better to tell us all how, for example, uptide fishing should be done than the man who invented it back in the 1970s, John Rawl. It was around the time of that John Rawl recording that it suddenly started to dawn on me that what I also had was a little piece of angling history, and that when I was gone and the website was wound up, these recordings, along with years of photographic and video work, would very likely all end up in escape. Unless, of course, I did something positive to ensure that that most certainly would not be the case. The big question for me was, what? Where could I donate the material and feel confident that it would remain available for research in the future, when perhaps interested parties might look back at what we are doing now in much the same way that we might look back at the Scarborough tunny fishery of the 1940s and 50s, when some of our grandparents regularly came ashore with fish in the four to six hundred pound bracket. Fortunately, I managed to grab an interview on just that subject with Bill Pashby, who was at the time the last surviving person present on any of those trips, but unfortunately has since passed away, reinforcing the importance of getting out there and harvesting this material now. My initial online searches led me to the National Sound Archive in London, who have agreed to set up a folder to preserve these interviews. But equally important, in fact more so in many ways, was the day I stumbled across Angling Heritage, which specialises in archiving all aspects of angling history. I actually couldn't believe my luck when I found this site. Now with a proper home for all this material, I suddenly found a whole new lease of drive and purpose to what I was doing. So it seemed only right and proper then that for the 100th recording that I should turn to the people who nudged me into gathering most of the previous 99, that being Angling Heritage organisers Sandy and Keith Armishaw, at whose kitchen table I'm currently sat with the voice recorder running. So let's start then by having you explain to us the concept and workings of Angling Heritage. Angling Heritage is a charitable trust which was established in 2009 to preserve angling oral history together with photographic and written records of our famous fishermen and also people from all walks of life. That's the basic overview, but how was the embryonic concept with its working plan taken forward to the point of becoming a working reality? In the beginning, there was no real intent to set this up as a trust at all. I just knew when I recorded Fred Taylor and Fred Buller, I listened through to it so many times while I was preparing it for a book and CDs that I realised that they had great stories to tell and that there were other people whose stories hadn't been written down. They might have written lots of fishing books, and I didn't necessarily want to know about their biggest fish. I wanted to know about their lives, really, and, the so- and to set it in a social context so that you had the social background to their life and times. And it kind of developed from that. Uh, it took me three years to produce the first book and recording, Recollections 1, during which time Fred had died. So it was in his memory that I decided to establish this trust and then just really develop it slowly and quietly and preserve history. Who takes the credit then for the original Angling Heritage concept? 
or did it perhaps simply evolve out of those earlier recollections recordings? It evolved quite naturally, actually, because it was my idea in the beginning. I met Fred um, through Keith's mother, I actually met Fred, and I realised what a great character he was, and I just knew that I wanted to know more about his life. So that was the driver, really. It was my curiosity that I wanted to know more about his life and times. And I hadn't at that stage met Fred Buller, but I was introduced to him at around that time, And they were friends, of course. They had fished together and experienced lots of things together. And I decided that if I just sat them down in a room and let them talk as old friends, and the whole thing took about eight or nine hours, and at the end of it, we were taking Fred J home, and um, he didn't want to go home. He was enjoying himself so much that... uh, And then he said, right, when can we do the next one? And it was from that, and I just knew then that I wanted to make this into a book with the CDs so that anybody who was interested could pick it up and listen and hear because I love hearing people's voices I love their accents it's much more interesting I think than having a book with photographs and it brings the whole thing to life so it evolved that way really there was no set idea in the beginning as to how it was going to go I suppose the timing of all this is also quite fortuitous Technology now allows for so much to be archived electronically in such a small space and be accessed freely by anyone and everyone that not preserving and recording this type of material is actually almost a crime. But unfortunately, not all of it can be digitally stored. How then do you plan to deal with the more physical items? What more of these would you like in the future? And if you get them, how might the angling public access them? Well, as you said, with development in technology, it's very easy these days to archive photographic, written, recorded material, film material. But there is a problem in that with magazines, for example, where you've got so much history in these magazines that needs preserving. And by its very nature, the magazines are degradable. So they need to be cared for properly. They need to be archived properly so that people can still go to them and read them. And I think our idea is that when we've got space in the museum, that they will have a home there. At the moment, they're residing here until the museum is up and running. But we would like to make those available to people. But also, by having the website, the Angling Heritage website, things can be scanned. Keith is constantly scanning things and putting them into that archive so that they can be accessed by anybody who wants to do any research. I'm intrigued by the idea of this museum. I wasn't previously aware that there might actually be building space set aside for physical exhibits in addition to access via the internet. So tell us more. Well, the museum is um, Torrington Museum and quite some time ago I asked them if we could have a space in the museum And they agreed because they could see that it was part of the town, the bookshop is part of the town. And they said that we could have some space in there. And it actually did reopen a little while ago and then closed down the very next day because they got dry rot. And they had to have substantial work done on the museum. So they've had to find new premises. And the last couple of years they've been locating those premises, which they have now. They're about to sign a contract. And it will be right in the town centre And at the moment, some of the artefacts that we have bought, our own personal stuff, is on display in the shop. But I'm very keen for that to be separated off because shops come and they go, businesses come and they go. 
but the museum will be a permanent home for what we are doing. And I think that the only thing that we need to do is to find the next generation who will carry it forward. But I think by having that location, people can go and access material, they can go and view stuff, and it's not locked away in some private collection uh, gathering dust. So yeah, we're waiting for the museum to reopen, and it's scheduled for springtime next year. But that can only accommodate a percentage of the material you've gathered together. Yes. So is the ongoing concept to try to display material, or are you resigned to the fact that much of this will have to go into storage? I think what we're trying to get away from is the idea that this is an angling museum. It's not an angling museum in the sense that we will have lots of artefacts. The kind of material that we're archiving, the photographic, as said, the written, um, the oral history, is easily stored because of the means of storing it. So I don't envisage that we're going to need an awful amount of space to house this material and to preserve it, really. We're not trying to establish an angling museum as such. This is, as I said, oral, photographic, written history. An accessible archive, then? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But more than that, it also has official charitable status. So perhaps you should outline the benefits in all directions of going for that. I thought it was important from the start to be absolutely upfront about what we were doing, that we needed to be transparent. There were no hidden agendas. So I chose the trustees very, very carefully to start with. And, of course, Fred Buller is such an iconic figure in angling history and his research is worldwide, it's revered that he was the perfect person to be the patron, and uh, he agreed to do that. And also Chris Yates did a similar thing in that both men have given us their good name, if you like, and they know us, they know about our background, whereas other people didn't know anything about us at all, didn't know where we were coming from, didn't know what the aims were. So they lent their name, and then... On top of that, we've got Reg Talbot, who works for the Cotswold Trust, and he is well-versed in charitable institutions and how they work. He's the accountant and the treasurer, and everything has to be passed through, past him to be signed and past me too, and everything is just absolutely transparent. Des Taylor was invited to join the Trust because he is in a different field of angling, And uh, we want to broaden this out. It's not just for, it's one of your questions, I think, somewhere, uh, that it's not just for freshwater fishermen, but it should take in the sea anglers, it should take in the fly fishers, the whole gamut, really, and from every walk of life. So it's important to have that charitable status. And we, so far, River Reads has funded everything to do with producing the Recollection series. The money has come out of my little bookshop, And I've been happy to do that. Now, the other thing is that when we set up the trust, we have a proper trust document, a deed, which we all have to sign. And not one person who's involved in it receives a penny for what they do. It's part of the ethos of what we do is that we, this is not, there's no hidden agenda there. It's all open for everybody to see. And uh, basically they give their time. They give their good name to what we do and they back what we do. Chris has been very, very supportive from the beginning in that he will do help me with fundraising things. If I come up with an idea, Chris backs it. 
And when I do the book signings, I charge people. And some people who are a bit tight-fisted, they say, oh, I'm not paying that for a signature. But actually, that money then goes into Angling Heritage and a chosen charity. So Angling Heritage in itself is not just about Angling Heritage. It's also about helping other charities as well. Obviously, this implies a good measure of forward planning with safeguards right from the onset. But that only protects the concept in the immediate and short term. What then do you have in mind to ensure this material continues to be archived and made available on an ongoing basis? I'll have a jolly good try at that. It's one thing that's a great concern to us because we are an older generation. Um, Certainly, I mean, I'm quite long in the tooth now. But what we've been trying to do in the last 12 months is to bring the next generation through to take it on. And we have one young man who's expressed a keen interest in what we're doing and wants to help. He has a friend who similarly would like to help. And I think we've got to identify the people who share the same views, share the same ideals, don't have their own agenda for what they're doing and genuinely would like to see history preserved and to be a part of that. So we're already trying to identify people who have that mindset and would be willing to do it for no money, really. They won't get paid for doing it. It's one of the things I tell people when they're recording recollections. One of the very first things I say to them is, well, I'll do this. You'll receive the book at the end of it, a heritage copy, but you won't get paid for doing it. And I don't don't do that. And, And as long as they understand that and they're not looking for any financial gain for themselves then that's what we need to do going forward. We need to plan ahead, which is why I'm very keen to get the space in the museum and then to identify the people who are going to take this forward. It can't stop just because I drop dead tomorrow. It can't stop because Keith's not there to archive. So it's important to bring in people who appreciate what we're trying to do and are sympathetic with that. You mentioned there the recollection series as a source of income that enables other archive functions to go ahead. Are there any other potential or actual sources of income in the pipeline to help bolster this? And if so, for what purposes would these be used? All of the money that comes in at the moment, I think I said earlier, everything has been funded by River Reads. When I organise a book signing, I'll organise a special event like Tea with Chris, for instance, where we auctioned off items and we raised money. And then that goes into the Angling Heritage pot. And that is there to help maintain the website, which is very, very important there's that continuity that that is fresh there's fresh material going into that all of the time well of course that has its costs the development of that site had its costs all borne by river reed what i would like it to get to a stage is where it is self-financing and standalone and one of the things that i found quite by chance i was looking at the hay festival site and on there is a pay to listen facility and i tracked down the young man who did it And I said, this is what I want to do with the Angling Heritage site. Can you develop this for us? And he did that. He's thoroughly professional. I know that that's going to be there and it will be maintained down the years because he's the right person for the job. And what we've got on there is a pay to view, pay to listen, which is a penny a token. You can buy, say, five pounds worth of tokens and you can spend it looking or listening to whatever appeals to you. And I think the more material that we put on there, your work that you've been doing, which I didn't know about until a couple of years ago, is absolutely perfect for that because you have managed to get to so many people 
in an area of fishing that we haven't even touched yet. And that's why I think your donation of, of that archive material is absolutely essential to what we're doing because it is part of that broad spectrum of material which can be accessed and should be accessed down the years. In 100 years' time, technology will have changed again. But this is history. This is history in the making. And it's so important to be doing it. So I was delighted when you came along to us and said, you know, told us what you've been doing. I think everyone out there contributes to history in their own different ways. You don't have to be famous or the capture of a record fish. So if anyone feels they would like to get involved with angling heritage, particularly in the form of donations, what type of thing are you looking for? What would you really like to have? And equally important, what type of thing would you simply not have the room to take possession of? I don't think actually space is a problem because of the way things are stored and archived. I really don't think that's a problem at all. And particularly with the recorded interviews that you do and I do for recollections, because there is so much space available in computer technology. And I also think that it is open to everybody. If What we're particularly interested in, I think, is the angling clubs, for example, because they have their history and maybe that would be lost if it wasn't preserved. And I, I do think that the space or that isn't really a problem. We're not actually looking for people's fishing tackle or large items which would be difficult for us to store. Uh, so we're not really looking for people's donations of fishing reels or rods, although we do have some in the collection just as a matter of interest for people. But what we are looking for really is people's written material, photographic, um, things which can be scanned and archived in a very small amount of space and are vital really to the history of angling. So the Trust has two very eminent trustees in Fred Buller and Chris Yates, both with a very strong freshwater bias. But presumably that's more of a coincidence than a preference because as you've already said, all aspects of angling are welcome. Actually, you're even looking to go one step further than that if you can get it by looking for interviews, anonymous of course, with porches and the like if you can get them, to give an even fuller history of what is affecting our fisheries at any given time. So what else might you also be interested in? I think I've touched on it earlier, is, is that what we're looking at really is, the, is angling and its social history. Because it's people from all walks of life, as you said, uh, poachers, Anybody really who has a story to tell, which is angling related. We're not actually looking for people's originals of letters, because I know that these do have a value. What we generally ask is if we can borrow them and we take good care of them and they return to their owners. It is just that they are a part of the record. So we're not looking for donations of valuable items and rest assured that they are returned to their owners. And every item that comes in is actually logged. It's given a catalogue number, and a hard copy of that is kept, as well as on the computer. And if you go into the website, you can access that. You can see who's donated what. So there is a record there of what people have contributed, and I think that's important as well, because it's all part and parcel of this social history and things that we would lose. For instance... Um, there's, there's one particular area of fishing which I won't go into, but we were told that when they moved premises, they ditched all of their records. They went into the bin. And that's such a shame because that's lost now. 
So it's not difficult for us to archive things. We simply need to borrow letters and photographs and then they return to their owners. Now a few of the people I've put the microphone in front of for this series of interviews have, um, how can I put it, not survived too long after the experience. Oh my goodness! <laughs> which I don't tend to tell people about until after the recording is done. On a more serious note though, time does march on and very quickly history can become lost. So for that reason alone I'm trying to pick up as many of the older generation as I can find before the Grim Reaper books them in. With that in mind, have you any thoughts on individuals or areas of fishing which you, me or for that matter anyone else listening in ought to be looking to grab while the opportunity still exists? Yes, I, I think it's very important because um, we've only been doing this since 2007 when I, I made the first recording and some very cruel person has actually joked about that. They said, don't let her record you because she will die before she's finished producing this book. And I think that's very unkind. I have tried to get that down to a year instead of three years. But it's the older generation, you see. It's that particular generation of anglers and the people who knew them. It's important to work hard to capture those while we can. Going forward, it's easier because having established this, we know what we need to do to preserve this. And I've actually said to a couple of anglers so far, and Chris is one of them, you're too young, I need you to have a few more years on you before we can do this recording. So you need that experience, lifetime's experience, but you don't want it to be too old, that it's too late, that they can't enjoy what's actually being produced and they can't actually listen. And sadly, it's happened to me on two occasions. And yes, there is that joke and uh, I'm trying to dispel that. <laughs> you and me both. Someone said to us though, Sorry, I'm interjected. No, it's okay. Tomorrow's history starts today. Yeah. That was Jeremy. Yes, it was. And we can't turn a blind eye. And one of the things, I mean, we're looking at the older generation, where most anglers were generalists to a greater or lesser degree, except maybe sea fishermen and freshwater fishermen. But now you've got barbell anglers, chub anglers, coarse anglers. Yeah. And those people who started off, if you like, those bodies... I think would be worth recording now about how that came about, how the separation of the sports come about. And because we're looking beyond that at the moment to the 16, 70 year old, if you look back probably to the 70s and 80s, that's something we ought to be looking at now. Absolutely. But you've got to be thinking forwards and trying or, um, in actual fact, I don't actually go looking for people to record. They're suggested to me. People will ring me and say, well, had you thought about doing so-and-so? I had a phone call a couple of days ago to do with an angling charity. There was a piece published in um, Tackle and Guns magazine, which I'd written. And he said to me, I didn't realise you were doing this. And he said, have you thought about recording so-and-so? And I said, well, would you like to speak to him and see if he would like to do that? So people are actually coming forward and they're saying, I'd like to do this. And that's really important. But of course, there is that urgency there with the older generation that we need to get that done. And you're much more nimble with this because you're going around a lot quicker than I'm getting to people. It just takes me too long at the moment. So what can the public at large do then to both enjoy and support angling heritage? Well, next year I'm hoping to launch a journal and I'd like to base it around the format for the Fly Fishers journal, which I like very much. And I think they do an amazing job in their field of angling in preserving history. I want to launch the journal and with that a membership scheme 
which will again generate some funds for angling heritage. I envisage that that's probably going to be once a year and I'd like my trustees to contribute. But in addition to that, I want everybody to send me their stories. If anyone listening to this has got a story, fishing-related story, that they feel is worth preserving, I want to hear from you. Whether you write it, whether you ring me and I record what your story is, but I will be encouraging members to actually contribute to the magazine and the money from that will go into Angling Heritage to fund, again, the website and future recordings so that it is actually standalone. And the final question, you'll no doubt be pleased to hear. <laughs> Why should anybody be bothered with a bunch of old has-beens and antiquated kit anyway? Well, I have to tell you that anybody with a soul would like to preserve angling history. And the people, they're certainly not old has-beens. You know, even if they've died, if, even if they're not on the planet anymore, their relevance to that particular piece of history is just as important now as at any time, really. And I think, I certainly don't think of it in terms of old tackle or old anglers or whatever. They've contributed towards a significant part of history, and that is worth preserving. You know I'm just playing devil's advocate here. If I wasn't, I wouldn't be recording this. The beauty for me of audio recordings is that coming straight from the horse's mouth, not only do they provide information, context and enthusiasm, but most important of all, a link back to the past, which when that opportunity is gone, it's gone quite literally forever. And with so much of it already missed, we really can't afford to let any more of it slip through our fingers.